It is a joy to worship our God together, is it not? Truly is. Christmas is such a a beautiful and and I don't know, I think of it as kind of a a wondrous season. Um, From my observations, even those who don't have faith in Jesus, even, even those who don't know Jesus, Christmas is still a time of celebration. It's a time of giving. It's a time of of being generous. It's a time of enjoying time with your family and warm feelings and Christmas lights and all that goes into Christmas. It, It really is a special season. But I'm here on the authority of God's word to remind you of the truth that at the end of the day, Christmas is meaningless without Jesus. Absolutely hollowed out, empty of purpose, of its true significance. It is empty without Jesus. We can get so caught up in, in the busyness. And it's, it's so funny, right? Because you think, oh, like we're off of work, things slow down. No, they don't. Things like ramp up and get more busy and more intense and like more demands on your schedule. It's like, wait, I thought Christmas was about peace. Or is it just me? That it can be really hectic. And if we're not careful, we can lose sight of what Christmas is actually about. Get caught up with the shopping and the travel plans, and everything else. And my prayer for this faith family is as we enter into this Christmas season and we focus our minds on this series called Wondrous, my hope and my prayer is that we will see the true wonder of Jesus this Christmas. Not seeing the wonder in Christmas, but seeing the wonder in Jesus, which is what it's all about. Let me read to you a well-known story. Now, as I read it in Luke 1, I want to give you the heads up. Those of you raised in church, um, you've heard this one before. Um, you've very, very likely read it or heard this taught or preached many times before, but I encourage you to approach the word of God with fresh eyes and with ears that are ready to encounter the living God. And may it not be stale bread, but may it be the living bread of heaven. May we read his word and be gripped by his absolute wonder. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. You hear that? For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Our God in heaven. in our own merits, with our own holiness or righteousness or our own religiosity, we have no business approaching you. We have no hope. We have no morality to stand upon. We are sinners and we deserve condemnation. And we read this story. It's gripping. Jesus, you are so wondrous. We're in awe of who you are and what you do. For nothing is impossible with you. And we stand before you and we approach you boldly because of your work on the cross, Jesus, the forgiveness that you have bought with your own blood, that now we are your sons and daughters set free from the domain of darkness and we belong to you and we are just humbled and in awe. Open our eyes, Spirit that we would see your wonder, that we would see how awe-inspiring you are, that we would not be bored or not have our mind on our schedules or the things that we have to do, but that may we be focused and hear from you and have an encounter with the resurrected King of glory. And we ask it for your glory and for our own blessing in your name, Jesus. Amen. There's so much truth in this text. Begin to unpack it in the time that I have allotted. And I know that I allot quite a bit of time to preach. And yet, there's a lot to unpack. There are two primary truths embedded, interwoven into this text that we're going to unpack here together this morning. We're going to see two things. If you're taking notes, one, we're going to see the wonder of who Jesus is. So we're talking about the person of Jesus, so the wonder of who he is. And then secondly, we're going to see the wonder of what Jesus does, so the work of Jesus. So we're going to see 
the glory of the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And we're going to see that there is no being in existence that is like him. He stands alone, unique, glorious, and worthy of us adoring him. So let's first see the wonder of who Jesus is. Verses 32 and 33, we just read it in the middle of this section. It has four descriptions of Jesus. It says the angel, and by the, by the way, the, the word angel means messenger. And so bringing a message from God. So an anachalos, a messenger. Same thing, Old Testament, melech. The same, Hebrew and Greek, both. Angel means messenger. And so they bring a message from God, and here's what the angel Gabriel is revealing about who Jesus is. He says, he will be great. He's like, Jesus will be great. The Greek word there is pretty common. The word is megas, as in mega, or as in big. And so we, we know this word. It means great. He is exceedingly mega. Great. Colossians chapter 1 describes the greatness of Jesus. So if you have not read Colossians 1 recently, read it and be in awe. It is, again, high Christology. It describes who Jesus is in amazing language. Here's an excerpt from Colossians 1. It says, Jesus says, all things are created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It says, in everything he might be preeminent. Like it's saying, everything in the whole world, every single molecule in existence is literally held together by the power of the word of Jesus. And all of it is vibrating down to the subatomic level, every single Peace of this whole universe is held together by Jesus and it exists for the display of the glory of Jesus, that he would be preeminent in all of it. He is the point. He is why we exist, why the universe is in existence. He says he will be great. If we could somehow assemble all the great people of, of the past, like I'm sure if you have teenage daughters at home, they, like mine, love Hamilton, right? It was like it used to be just a Broadway thing. But ever since COVID, now it's the whole world thing because now everyone knows about it. And, and so now these teenagers know American history, which for that I actually rejoice. Like it's actually kind of a good thing. And you hear about these, these men that were amazing. If you could bring together all of these, these thinkers about like the philosophy of government and who were writing the Constitution. And if you could go further back and find other great thinkers or philosophers and bring all of them throughout all of history together and sit them down, all of these great thinkers of the world, of the past, and of the present, every one of them would bow down before King Jesus in awe of the wisdom of Jesus. If you could bring together all of the amazing generals from history past all the way to present, 
thinkers who know strategy and know how to lead a battle and lead a war and have victory over the enemy, every single one of these amazing military leaders would bow before Jesus and be in awe of his strategy and his wisdom. He could bring together all the most amazing composers of the past and of the present, those who love music and can just think of amazing tunes or beats. And brought all of them from all of the history of humanity, and they would stand before Jesus. They would be in awe of his music theory, of his ability, of his talent, of his voice. They would just be like, oh my, how do you know that kind of music theory? And he would just chuckle and say, I invented music. It wouldn't matter if you brought together all the greatest scientists that have ever existed. They would be in awe of his scientific knowledge because he thought of chemistry. He thought of geology and physics. It's his idea. He thought of math. All we do is discover it. All we do is learn about what is already embedded and created in the world. And we go and we, we unlock it and find it. It's like all these Easter eggs that God put. It's like the whole world is just full of them. God says, go find them. And then and the idea is we find them and we say, oh, God, you're amazing. Jesus, you rock. You're so awesome. You are great, is what you see with the angel Gabriel saying he's great. It's like, how do you begin to even describe his greatness? Like, man, and I love words. And words fail me. Anything that you think is so great, what is it? In your mind, think, oh, blank is so great. Maybe you're thinking, oh, turkey for Christmas. We just had some for Thanksgiving. There's more coming up in two weeks. Or whatever it is that you think that's so great, whatever it is that you think your, your, your trip that's coming up, or hunting next weekend, or watching the cowboy. Oh, no, that's not great. Um, or whatever, whatever it is that to you is just so great. Whatever that is, Jesus is like a bazillion times greater. He's great. Profoundly great. But he says that he is the son of the most high. So he says he is great and he is the son of the most high. And so Jesus is the second member of the eternal trinity, the second member in the Godhead. Okay, the eternal God, the son, who shares in the same essence, the same nature of God, the father, and God, the spirit. All three are one three individual persons, and yet one God, all three share the exact same divine essence or divine nature. So when he says he is the son of the most high, it's describing his role as son as having authority, ruling authority. And he shares the same nature as God the Father. He is the son of God. And it says, number three, that he will sit on David's throne. This is referencing 2 Samuel chapter 7, 
where it describes God revealing through the prophet Nathan that God would have a plan for a descendant of David to rule over his people and that the kingdom would have no end. And so I'll give you an excerpt from 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. He says, I will raise up your offspring. This is God speaking to King David a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. So a thousand BC, Jesus told David, I will raise up your offspring, a descendant after you who shall come from your body, your same lineage, your same DNA. He will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. Huh. So who do you think God was talking about a thousand years earlier? It kind of sounds like Jesus. Because it is. Because he is Messiah that was promised, that was foretold, who came in the fullness of time who is the descendant of David, who is the king over his kingdom of light that will have no end. And it says, last it says, his kingdom will have no end. You see it in verse 33. His kingdom will last forever. He's going to rule over all nations. Read the book of Revelation. You see repeatedly in chapter 7, for example, chapter 5, but you see is these throne room moments, like in Revelation 7, describes all nations, all peoples together gathered, worshiping the king. You see the mission of God. God is the God who is on mission, who is out to redeem people from every single people group and gather them together as one worshiping community who all love the king, and are all been rescued by the king. You see, Jesus is not just some ancient religious leader or a good teacher who showed us the way to God. He's not like Siddhartha Gautama or the enlightened one, the Buddha, who was enlightened and, and given the ninefold noble path to get to nirvana. God is not like Muhammad, who supposedly was given this vision of these five pillars of Islam. Let's say, if you follow these five pillars, then you will get to heaven or paradise. No, Jesus is not a prophet who showed us the way to God. Jesus is God who came down to reach down He's not a prophet who showed us the way to God. He is God who has come to bring us to himself. This is not just a man or good prophet or moral teacher or religious leader. He is divine. He has a divine nature. And yet this text that we just read also shows that he has a human nature. 
So you see this in verse 31. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So he's saying you're going to have a human being that will grow in your uterus, and you will give birth through your birth canal, just like every other human that has been born. You will give birth. This is a natural thing. So he is shown to be a human. You see in verse 34, Mary says, but how am I going to give birth? She says, I'm a virgin. And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So the Spirit of God will conceive this life in you. So it's not going to be the male gamete. It's not. It's the Holy Spirit that supernaturally, miraculously conceived this human life in her womb. The Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born, so he's going to be born like any other human, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so Jesus was conceived now, not like you and I were conceived. He was conceived supernaturally. There were no male DNA that contributed to the conception of the Son of God becoming a human being, Jesus. But he is a human being who was conceived in a woman, and it took 40 weeks to develop. And he was a fetus, and he was born on that holy night. That first Christmas, he was physically born. Jesus has, not had, Jesus has. Right now, as we speak, Jesus is a human. He has a physical body. He has skin like you and I have. He has brown hair because he's Jewish. He's not white. So every, every, like, Easter, it makes me want to throw up when I see these little, like, bags and coloring pages that have a blonde hair, blue eye, white Jesus. No, he's Jewish. He's human. And right now, as we speak in heaven, he has a physical body, and he will return bodily as he went up with a physical body. So Jesus is Fully human, and yet Jesus is fully God. Okay, there's so much going on here that I needed to unpack this. I'm going to give you two big terms, all right? So, it's, so for this, you're going to have to put on your thinking caps, all right? Like, we're going to talk some theology now, okay? And so I'm going to give you two theological terms that you need to learn that will help you see the wonder of who Jesus is the first one is incarnation. And so we're going to talk about here for a few minutes the incarnation of the eternal God, the Son. So the word incarnation is not that complicated, I promise. Um, have you ever gone to so the Jalisco and order carne asada? Right? Anyone? Or, or carne guisada? Or any other kind of the word carne in it? Carne, if, you, if you're not Hispanic, I'm sorry. So, carne, and you can add some tortillas instead of some tortillas. So, the word in, the Sp in Spanish, carne, means meat. 
Carne asada, grilled meat. That's what it means. Carne, carne means meat. So like carnage or, or carnal or carnivore eats what? Meat. So it's a Latin word, all right? It's not that hard. We got this, right? So the word carne means meat. And so this is from the Latin, white Spanish. You know, it's, it's, it's related to that. So you have incarne, incarnation. And so in flesh, receiving human flesh. So not like meat, but like flesh. And so to be incarnated means that God, the Son, who has existed from eternity past, who did not have a body, was purely spirit, like the Father is spirit, and the Son was spirit, and the Spirit of God is spirit. The second member of the Trinity took on human flesh, became a human. He was incarnated. He took on human flesh. Christmas at its heart, what is Christmas? It is about the incarnation. It is about the eternal Son of God becoming a human being, taking on flesh just like you and me. Fully God, fully human. The incarnation. Verse 37 reminds us, nothing is impossible because this seems impossible. It's not. Because with God, all things are possible. Now let me give you a second term that goes along with the incarnation. It is the hypostatic union. You're like, what? Say that again. Hypo, H-Y-P-O. Static. Just like if you go in your carpet with, and you do this, and then you hit someone, and then <laughs> static them. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. Like I, I asked Bonnie, have you heard of the hypostatic unit? She was like, you mean like if you go in the carpet? And then I, I'm like, no, that's static. That's not what I'm talking about here. Like, I'm not going to hypostatic you, right? Hypostatic is the term, all right? So hypostatic union. It's not as complex as these big theological words sound. They're really very basic once you get past the mystique of the big word. So the word hypostatic, it comes from, from the, Latin, the Greek word hypostasis. And so it's just a Greek word. And so that's why it's what it is. But it evolved over the, over the centuries. And really all it means is personal. That's all it means. Like in the original, the hypostasis in the Greek, it meant like real essence, that's what the word means in the original. Like it means like someone's down to their core, what their actual essence is. So essence or actual being is what the word hypostasis means. So the nature of a person. So what you're made of physically, spiritually, like down to your core, right? your essence. But again, it, it evolved from the essence to just be your person. And that makes sense because who you are at your core is your person. It's who you are. And so the word just means person or personal. So hypostatic, just honestly, it just means personal. When you, when you boil it down to what it actually means, a, a person's essence of what they are. So the hypostatic union means the personal 
union of the two natures of Jesus, his divine nature and his human nature. So Jesus has two complete natures. He's not like us. We have one nature. We have human nature. That's all we've got. God the Father has one nature, divine. God the Spirit has one nature, divine. Your dog has a nature, canine. It's a dog nature, all right? Like, everything has its nature. Following me? Jesus is unique. Jesus has two natures. Human nature, divine nature. And so this phrase, hypostatic union, simply means the personal union of these two natures together in this one divine person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. In 451 AD, so a long time ago, there was a church council in the city of Chalcedon, modern-day Turkey. So the, the uh, creed of Chalcedon is where it, Biblical thinkers finally were able to, like, define exactly what it means from the Bible that Jesus has both the divine God and human nature. And there are four key statements that help clarify who Jesus is. So don't get lost in the weeds. The point here is to see the wonder of who Jesus is, that we be in awe of who he is. And so we're talking about his personal union with two natures. One, it's without confusion. There is no confusion between these two natures, okay? It's not like there's blue and then there's yellow. And when you mix them, what do you get? Green. In case you forgot your primary and secondary color, green. So you have one color, blue, one color, yellow. You mix them, and now you have a third new thing, green. Green is not yellow. Green is not blue. Green is a whole new third thing that is neither blue nor yellow. It's a whole different color. It's called green. And so when we talk about Jesus having human nature and divine nature coming together, What we're saying is it's without confusion, without mixture. It's not as though God, the Son, Jesus, mixed these two natures, and now he's a whole new third thing that's neither God nor human. Following me? No confusion. No mixing to create a whole new third different reality. He is fully God, fully human, without confusion. Next, without change. When he was incarnated, when the second member of the Trinity was incarnated, it's not as though his God, his divine essence was changed. He he retained his full divinity, his full Godness, his God nature was not changed when he took on human Flesh. Let's say it this way. There was no change in his substance. What he's, what he's made of, his essence was not changed with the union 
of humanity and his divinity. So without confusion, without change. Also without division. So this is important. There is no division between his two natures. It's not as though the divine nature, human nature came together and now he is 50% human and 50% God. Because that would make him half human. Only half of human nature and only half of God nature. No, that did not happen. He did not become a 50-50 human and and God. He is 100% fully God, 100% fully human. He is a real human being just like you and me. But he is really God just like he has been from eternity past. Lastly, without separation. So no separation. So the union of human and divine in this one person of Jesus is a real, actual union. Our minds can't comprehend this. There is mystery here. Maybe you're thinking, hey, I thought I was going to a church service or a Christmas sermon. Why am I getting all of this theology? I want you to see the wonder of Jesus. I want you to be in awe of how just absolutely stunningly radiant he is. And our minds, as much as we try and we grapple with these truths, they're so lofty. And there's such mystery here. If you read of the accounts of people that interacted with Jesus through the gospel, particularly Matthew, but in all of them, what you see over and over and over is people that come to face with Jesus. You know what they do very often? They bow before him and they Worship. You see it again at the very end of Matthew 28. After he resurrected, his disciples saw him. And what did they do? They bowed before him and they worshiped. John chapter 20, when good old doubting Thomas, when he sees Jesus resurrected live, he sees the scars on his hands and feet inside. What does Thomas do? He cries out and says, my Lord and my God. He calls Jesus his God. He worships Jesus. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1. how does Peter describe Jesus? Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a union that is such a mystery. It loses an awe of who he is, and it is the point of Christmas. So when you're at a Christmas party, you can say, did you know the point of Christmas is the incarnation and hypostatic union? And they'll be like, what? You're like, yes. Let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about Jesus and how absolutely stunning is. 
You know, when, when you think about Jesus being a fully incarnated human who is fully divine, it reveals two things about God that leave us in awe and see who he is. It reveals that he is fully holy and fully loving. He's both. Let me explain to you why this is so important. If he were only holy but not loving, then he would not have come. There'd be no incarnation. There'd be no Christmas. There'd be no hypostatic union. There would not be a Jesus. There would not be a redemption. Why? Because if God is holy and not loving, he would have stood up in heaven, not come down and said, hey, try harder. Reach my standard. Be more religious. Clean yourself up. Try harder. Do more. Give me more. Make yourself more holy. Make yourself more presentable to me. Come and reach my holy standard. He would not have come down. He would ask us to come up to his standard. If God were fully loving and not holy, so if God's not holy, then there is no standard of holiness. There is no absolute truth. There is no standard to measure what's right or wrong. So truth becomes relative. Truth is what you want it to be. Truth is your opinion. It's your preference. I'm okay. You're okay. Our world today is crying out. There is no standard of holiness. It's subjective. And if that were true, if God were all loving and not holy, he would not have come. Why would he come and die on the cross when sin doesn't even exist? If there's no such thing as sin, why would he come? But you see, there is a standard. And it is the very character of Jesus. He defines what is right and what is holy. And we fall short and deserve his condemnation. We deserve it. And yet he is loving. And so he came. Not to show us the way to God. To be the way to God. Because he himself is God in flesh. Message of Christmas is the message of human beings who deserve condemnation, who receive mercy because God himself came. Do you see it? Do you see the stunning glory of Jesus? Do you see the wonder of who Jesus is? I was watching with the kids last night, um, Netflix movie, The Christmas Chronicles with Kurt Russell. It's not a bad Christmas movie. He says, and in, in, in he has a line and he says, Christmas is all about showing people how good they can be. Actually, it's not. Christmas is about showing us how evil we can be and how we'd have no hope 
to rescue ourselves, except that the king of glory came down from heaven, incarnated as a human being, is fully God, fully human, and because he's fully human, he could die on the cross for our sins. He could represent sinful humanity, but because he was fully God, he was sinless. It had to be Jesus. It had to be the incarnation. It had to be this hypostatic union. It had to be Jesus. There was no other hope for us apart from the God-man dying on the cross for our sins. That's what Christmas is about. Seeing the wonder of Jesus. Our time is already like expired, but just let me give you a few thoughts on seeing the wonder in the work. And I could talk for a long time about the wonder of seeing Jesus. I get it seeing the wonder of who he is. But let me talk for a minute about the wonder of what he does. You see, the wonder of what he does, so his work is seen so clearly because when the angel comes to Mary, he calls her favored one, and you have found favor with God. Now, you know that word favor in the original is the word charis, which is grace. Favored is Grace, that's the word, the same word for grace. Oh, graced one, you have found grace with God. You see, we know what the words mean. It changes the whole meaning. Because if you think favored as if somehow she earned favor with God, then you get that broken Catholic theology of the Immaculate Conception. It's, it's wrong. She was not immaculate. She was was sinful. She needed the grace, the favor of God. She received grace. She did not earn it. She did not deserve it. Mary was a recipient of the grace of God who gave birth to the Messiah who would rescue her and all of humanity from our sin. It is all about Grace from beginning to end. It's the mercy of God made possible because of the incarnation and this personal union of God and humanity in one mind-blowing person named Jesus of Nazareth, who became a human, who was born to die, born to be the sacrifice that only he could be. He had to be a human, but he had to be sinless. He is both. That's the point. Seeing the wonder in the work of Jesus is his work on the cross, his work of redemption, of rescuing us. Verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. So you can know that you are loved in your pain today. You are loved. In your failures, you are loved. In your struggles, you are loved. In your depression, you are loved. In your uncertainties, your insecurities, in your continuing the same sinful habit that you hate, you are loved. And all things are possible with God and Jesus with this message of Christmas, 
proves that all things are possible. So do you need a miracle today? Do you feel like what you're facing is just too much and you can't handle it? And you're like, I just don't see a way out. I don't see how. I, I can't manage this. I can't fix this. I can't change that. No, you can't. But there's one who can. For all things are possible. Just believe. He's trustworthy. The incarnation, his death, his resurrection, prove it. What happens? What happens to a person when they see the wonder and who Jesus is and what he does and they believe that all things are possible, even in the pain. What happens to someone? Verse 38. How does she respond? I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You know what happens to someone who sees the wonder of Jesus? They surrender complete surrender. We, we live with our palms open, not clenched, holding on to our agendas, but saying, God, it's all yours. You made me and you saved me. I'm in all of you. Take it all. Whatever it takes, just take it. I just, I just need you. I just want you. Let it be done to me, like your will, because I trust you. I just want your presence and your glory. That's all I need. I got you. I got enough. Surrender. Christmas is awe-inspiring because Jesus is awe-inspiring. We partake of this thing called redemption. And we worship the one who was incarnated, the one who died and resurrected, has resurrected us spiritually, will one day resurrect us physically. I pray that you will see the wonder of Jesus this Christmas because he's worthy of your love, your affection, your obedience. Oh, come, let us adore.